Um, the, the passage that Adam read from Matthew 1, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the very end of my sermon. I essentially want to build up, up to it and then come crashing down at the very end of it. So it's going to sound like I'm talking about something totally different, but I'm not going to, okay? So just try to hang with me here for a little bit, and I promise it'll all make sense in about 47 minutes. I'm just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> and it's a short sermon, so it's going to be less than an hour. Um, Yeah, there's bacon. Okay, about 2,500 years ago, 520 BC, um, God's people had come back from Babylon, and they had been in exile for 70 years. They came back to a heap of rubble in, um, in Jerusalem, and their lives were just not really working out. Things had not turned out right. Things seemed to actually be going in the wrong direction, not the right direction. Um, they felt kind of stuck. And, and they, they, they were stuck, but worse, even worse than that, they felt stuck, you know? And um, they, if you looked at their lives, they, if you look at the prophet, prophet Haggai closely, their, their lives showed signs of affluence, but when it came right down to their actual finances, they were right on the edge of making it. They, um, times were really uncertain, but it, it wasn't the kind of uncertainty that each individual felt like they could do something about. It was one of those kind of general uncertainties where— Everybody was hoping for something to change, but they couldn't really figure out what to do themselves to make everything change, to be the way they wanted it to. And, um, and it was a time of real enemies, both political and terrorist. I mean, if you read the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, they were, they were the different little countries around them were kept telling the emperor of the, of the, of the Babylonian empire, hey, these people are just going to cause trouble. You should just go ahead and kill them or something. And meanwhile, there was the people right next door were like, we're going to show up anytime. We're just going to set your stuff on fire. We're just going to come in and kill people. And, and so, the, and okay, so I know what some of you are already thinking, okay, preacher boy, I, like I understand what you're doing here. You're trying to, you're trying to like, you're trying to transfer what we all might be feeling as like modern Americans onto this Bible passage so that you can kind of encourage us. And that's very clever. Um, if you're, you are thinking that, you are probably a visitor because I'm not exactly known as Captain Encouragement. Um, however, uh, that's funny for those who go here, yeah. Um, but, but also, if you, the more you know about the Israelites who came back from exile, the more you'll realize that they were far more entitled to every one of those feelings than we are. Far more entitled to those feelings than we are. Um, and and here's one of the things that, that's also far more true about them in a lot of ways. They were actually far more devout than us. For them to feel as spiritually stuck as they were, as, and even in, and to a certain extent abandoned by God, they, these are people not less devout than us, but more devout than us. Let me, let me try to break this down and what I mean by that. These are people who for 70 years their families had been living in the most cosmopolitan capital city of the largest empire in the world, in which they had prospered to a certain extent at least. And it's an agrarian culture that is built both on crops and on fruiting trees. And so, and that may not sound like a big deal to you, but when you spend, your family spends 70 years creating a mature orchard that every year pumps out fruit and, and dates and figs and, and olives every year, right? And, and all the trees are mature. To go to a place where you're going to plant seedlings and wait a decade before they're real—I mean, it's a, it's a huge financial— going from a place where you, you own a home, your kids live around you, from going to a place where you're going you're gonna to pick up rocks and stack them on each other to make a dwelling for yourself, okay? You're going to go across—it's 520 miles as the crow flies, but you can't cross the desert, so it's more like a 600-mile trek just to get from one place to the other. 
And the only benefit you get from it is not that the land is better. It's just that it's Jerusalem. That's it. It's Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. It's where Mount Zion is. It's where God told his people to go. It's where God said he was going to bless them. It was, it was for purely religious reasons that these people packed up. And it wasn't all the Jews that packed up. It was just the ones that were willing to go. They packed up, they traveled 500 miles, and they came to a city in ruins, and they started to rebuild their lives. And they, I mean, you can imagine that they really believed that God was really going to bless them. Right? I mean, you read the Bible, there's all this blessing this and blessing that, right? And so they get there in 536, and they get right to it, and they build their homes, and they build the foundation of the temple, and they build a new altar, and sacrifices start, and things seem to be going pretty well. But then all these political things and terrorist things kind of start going on, and the whole thing just stalls, and then it stops for a decade. By the time you get to Zechariah, and by the time you get to Haggai, they've been doing nothing for a decade. Their lives are coming apart, and the book of Haggai says that the year Haggai started to prophesy, they had planted their last seeds in the ground. One more bad crop, and they were through. Um, and the, the reason that's important is because when all that stuff happens and you think you're doing God's will, you're not just economically stuck or sociologically stuck or psychologically whatever. You're spiritually stuck. And there's a sense in which, a sense in which being spiritually stuck is the worst kind of stuck. Because you don't, there's no resources that you can get back to once you're spiritually stuck. If, because if, 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 something, if something bad is happening to you, but you have resources that you can kind of back up to, that gives you the strength to then push out forward again, then you're okay. But if, if all the way on the inside, all the way to the back of the wall, God's not there, or you don't think he's there, you don't know how to, whatever, it's the worst kind of stuck. In fact, there's this proverb Proverbs 28, 1 that says this. He sa- it says, A wicked man flees even when nobody's chasing him, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I mean, the people who know God and live for God, they believe God is with them and they believe they know they're on God's side. They're, 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 those kind of people, they are hard to get to back down. They're bold as a lion. But when those people act bold as a lion and a couple of decades go by and things start to be falling apart and they begin to wonder if God is really with them. They oftentimes act like these people. Not bold as a lion. And so what I want to do for a couple minutes here is um, I want to weave together a couple prophetic things in the Old Testament that push through towards till Jesus that if you don't see the interconnections, it's really not that encouraging. But when when you know all the interconnections and what they're really saying, it's so profoundly clear and so hundreds of years before Jesus that it can be extremely encouraging. And and I, okay, I know some of you some of you are like, oh great, so it's a sermon basically on fortune telling. Hmm, that's nice because some of you I know have given up on prophecy a long time ago. You just don't believe in it, and and I understand that. But let me just say this. Um, you might be wrong. You might be wrong. And um, the difference between this and sort of the sham kind of prophetic-y, religious-y, whatever thing that has made you cynical uh, is that you can actually track this across hundreds of years. 
and what was actually said and what really happened in a way that you just can't do when somebody reads your palm or reads your personality or looks at the way you hold your shoulders and says something about you. And that's one of the things that's the most profoundly encouraging about this. So, track through this with me because I, I, I feel like, you know, if you're feeling a little bit stuck, and if you're feeling like some of the things that are true about these people are true, at least in parts about you, and if you're feeling like maybe God isn't exactly with you, and if you're not feeling particularly bold as a lion, maybe the thing that God said to them that made them so could help you be so. Does that make sense? So here it is. Okay, to set this up for you, I need to read a couple passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah, who are prophets in the Old Testament who come before Zechariah. There's this concept in both Zechariah and Jeremiah, who were the prophets who were speaking about the time the Jews were going into exile 70 years before. And they, they talked about this thing that God just called the branch. That's all he called it. And, and here, the, here are the verses in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Me. In Isaiah 11, what it says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. In Jeremiah 23, 5, it says this, and the, and the, days, the, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And 10 chapters later, he says it again. In those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right. In the land. There's another verse in Isaiah that's not quite as germane, but another mention of this. And um, just to get that a little bit related, there's one more verse that is relevant to the passage I'm going to read you out of Zechariah, which is this. In Isaiah, there's this character called, my, God just calls him my servant. My servant. Particularly in chapters 52 and 53. And he is a, a figure who is a messianic figure. In fact, the most specific chapter about the Messiah, 700 years before he was even born in the whole Bible, is Isaiah 53. And this verse is relevant because the—so put this in your head, and then I'm going to come around to it. It says this, He grew up—this is the servant, right, the Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, the, the reason that's important is because the picture here isn't just that there is this branch figure that's going to come and be fantastic, but the issue here is, is that it's going to come out of dead. It's, it's going to come not just from where it's least expected, but it's going to come out of, a lot, out of a dead end. It's going to come out of a sawed-off tree. It's going to come out of something that's totally broken. So the branch is going to be a shoot from Jesse's line, but the line of Jesse, the line of kings, is a stump. It's not a tree. It's been totally cut off. It's been completely destroyed. It's dead. And what he's saying is, I'm going to grow a shoot out of that stump, and the line of kings is going to live again. The other of the three major prophets of that time was a guy named Ezekiel. And there's a passage in Ezekiel 37 where God takes Ezekiel in a vision. He puts him in this valley of, of dead people. It's just bones. And he makes him walk around through it. And there's just all these white, hot, caked by the sun, dried out bones in the valley. And, um, and God says to Ezekiel, he says, he says, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel gives a relatively diplomatic answer. He says, well, God, surely you know. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's kind of funny. But then God turns out and makes him take personal responsibility for it. He says, no, 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 you're the prophet I've picked. You Talk to the bones and tell them to live. 
And Ezekiel's like, okay. And he, so he has this vision of God taking these disvalued bones and making them live again. And, he, and, then, and then he says, um, in, in verse 11, in Ezekiel chapter 37, he said, these dry bones are my people, Israel. They are dried up and they say, my hope is gone. Do you see the connection? A, a shoot comes out of the stump, right? Isaiah 53, out of the desert, this little green plant grows up. My servant. In Ezekiel, he says, there's a valley of, of dead people. They're, they're not just dead, they're rotted, down to the bone, caked by the sun, totally gone. But I speak, and they come alive again. Do you see the idea that God has the ability to take hopeless people, scattered people, leaderless people, hopeless people, people who are not bold as a lion, but are ready to run even if nobody chases them. And he has the ability to say, I'm going to, I'm going to come. At that moment is when I'm going to come. And I'm going to raise up something very special. My king, this righteous branch. And, and he's going to do something that these people have lost hope is possible to happen. Which brings us to Zechariah. Two passages that bring this together, and I want to try to make this interconnection for you because I find it very encouraging personally. Um, Isaiah 3, 8 to 10 says this. Um, and, and so this is a prophecy Zechariah is giving to Joshua. Now, Joshua is the high priest who came back with these people to rebuild Jerusalem. So he's one of two or three major leaders, and it's under his leadership that everything has failed. It was his, under his leadership that they came back in the first place. But it's also under his leadership that everything is stalled. And so God comes to him, and this is the prophecy he receives, right? Listen, O high priest Joshua, and you associates seated before you. So this, these other leaders with him, he says this. You are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Do you see that? Isaiah 53, my servant, and the branch. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I've set before you. In front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Right? So you see the, the imagery that, there's, the end of the imagery is prosperity. That prosperity is going to come from the king who's going to come, who, jo who Joshua is somehow symbolic of this servant branch, and, and that servant branch, who Joshua is somehow symbolic of, is going to take away the sin of the whole land in a single day. Which is kind of interesting because the branch, in all the places where the branch is mentioned, the branch is a successful king. Every place, he's a success. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring prosperity. He's going to win. He's going to bring the people together. He's going he's to make it happen, right? But guess what the servant is? The servant is a failure figure. It's a, he's a suffering figure. He's a, he's a, He's a, he's a guy who gets killed, it says in Isaiah 53. But it also says in Isaiah 53 that it's through his suffering that the land, that the, the people are forgiven, that that redemption comes. And so this Joshua figure somehow is both of these, which is a little odd, which just from that passage would be hard to get through. That's why a couple chapters later, he circles back around to this, and this is what he says. And this kind of puts— pulls the thing into its clearest focus. He says, The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tabijah, and Jediah, 
who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest. Joshua, son of Jehozadak, tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from this place and rebuild the temple of the, and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne and he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tabijah, and Jediah and Hen son of Zephaniah as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. That's really riveting, right? Are you excited? It's not unless you see the interconnection of it. Now think about this. Um, if you go back in the Old Testament to Saul, what was, what was the moment where Saul lost the kingship? It was the very moment where he decided he had the right to do the work of a priest. That's when he lost the kingship. Because in Israel, kings and priests were totally separate. They could never overlap. They had totally different work. Um, God believed in an absolute separation of powers, and it's partly because the kingship was never his idea in the first place, but it was the sinful idea of the Israelites that he went along with because they asked for it. And he said, that's what you want, you can have it. But he would never allow the work of the priest to be done by a king, which is kind of odd because what is this person? And, and listen, there was a king figure. There was a guy, and we'll talk about this when we get to Haggai next month. There was a guy named Zerubbabel who was a son of David who was in the line of kings, who was sent back from Babylon as the one who was the rightful king. I mean, there was a person to put a crown on among Joshua's associates. Joshua was not the person rightfully to be crowned king, right? So these guys show up who finally made the trip from Babylon. They have silver and gold. And Zechariah goes, go and take the silver and gold, make a crown like a king, and come and put it on Joshua the high priest. And then he says this, because this is the man who's Name is the branch, right? He will bring the kingship together with the priesthood. He will take away the sins of the people in a single day. He will rule over God's people. He is the one who will build the temple. Joshua is clothed in new, clean garments in chapter 3, but this one's going to be clothed with majesty. Right? And this is 520 B.C., folks. 520 B.C. Now, one of the reasons why that's slightly interesting is because—do you already see where this is going? Is because when you get to Matthew chapter 1, God comes to Joseph because, jo because it's the husband in a, in a marriage that has the right to name, particularly the firstborn son. So it's not Mary who's going to name her son. It's Joseph who's going to name the son. Right? Remember that from last night? They're, they're arguing over what they should name Zachariah's son. And he has to write down, no, his name is John. Boom, that's it. It's over. The father has spoken, right? So, so Joseph, the one who's going to divorce Mary, is actually the one who God has elected to name this child. And so the angel comes and he says, listen, you're going to marry her. All right? Don't worry about it. She's from the Holy Spirit. And here's what you call him. You've got to name him. You've got to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, why is it that if somebody, if he's going to save his people from their sins, that means he has to be called Jesus. Have you ever wondered that? Jesus isn't a really cool name. If he's going to be like the king, he ought to have the coolest name in the world, right? Like Max Powers or something, right? But I mean, why Jesus? 
Because Jesus doesn't mean king, right? It doesn't mean pancaker. I mean, it doesn't mean winner. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean any of those things. Well, I mean, so why Jesus? Well, because Jesus is actually, we say Jesus because there aren't, there aren't Y's and J's in Greek. And so the name Iesu gets brought into English as Jesus. But Iesu was the best they could do with the Hebrew Yehuda, which is Joshua. You see, Jesus' name properly isn't Jesus. It's Joshua. Because he is the one whose name is the branch. Now put that in your skepticism pipe and smoke it. 520 BC, the name of the Messiah, the exact name of the branch king is prophesied exactly. And that's not something Jesus can like fulfill himself. You don't pick your own name. But it's not only that, but it weaves together all these other things, the branch and the servant and the priesthood and the kingship and how they function and they come together and they, and they come together 520 BC in this picture of the crowned priest who is the branch, whose name is Joshua, he saves. And you know what that did to those people? It gave them the sense, and nothing happened then, did it? It was just a prophecy that something's gonna happen. But what has to happen in order for that crown to be a memorial? Did you hear at the end of the verse? What are, you, what are they supposed to do with the crown? He goes, take the crown and put it in the temple. There isn't a temple. <laughs> there isn't a temple. In order for the crown to be the memorial, you've got to build a temple around it. Get to work. Do you see the point? Get to work. You've got to build a temple. Because this crown— that, that is a memorial of the servant king who's coming, the branch who is the sprout of David. That, it's a symbol of him. It was on Joshua. That will be his very name. Now, build the temple. But nothing's actually happened. But you know what the people did? They built the temple. Be, why? Because they believed that God was with them. Not because they had gotten the king, but just because God had re-promised and re-shown and clarified the coming king. But that was enough for them to know God is with them, which is really interesting because that's exactly what Matthew 1 says. Because remember what the angel says? He, said, he says to Joseph, he says, you've got to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. But then you know what it says right after that? This all happened to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, that the virgin will be with child and she'll give birth to a son. And what will they call him? They will call him Emmanuel. Why? Because Emmanuel means God is with us. The purpose of the promise in Zechariah was so those people would realize again that, when jo that Joshua is coming, the one who saves, and therefore they could know, Emmanuel, that God is with us. And on this day, we celebrate the fact that the, that the branch king servant Joshua did come, the one whose name, very name means he saves, the one who did take away the sins of the whole people in a single day. 
The one who isn't clothed just with white garments, but will be clothed in majesty in his returning glory. He will bring together the work on our behalf of the priest and the work that will be done forever as the ruling king. He will bring the two together perfectly. And we will know forever that God is with us. And we can therefore know, just like they knew, in retrospect right now, that his right name for all of us is Emmanuel. God is with us. And if you know that, it doesn't actually mean that you're going to be totally unstuck in every way. It doesn't mean that we won't have terrorist or political enemies. It doesn't mean that we'll be familiarly or psychologically or relationally or economically or whatever unstuck. It doesn't necessarily mean any of those things. But it could mean that we won't run when nobody's even chasing us. But instead that because we believe that God is with us, that we will be bold as a lion. If we believe that the branch servant Joshua has come. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would, that you'd encourage us with the fact that you were willing to reveal so clearly what you would do in the future so long before it happened. Predicting something a day beforehand is interesting enough but to give a half millennium notice of the name of the Messiah was pretty cool. And we pray, Father, that from things like this and lots of other things, we could see your promises for the truth that they are and that we could be encouraged that you are with us and that we can be bold as a lion. And we pray that you would make us that. Help us to rejoice in the coming of the, the true Joshua, the final Joshua the one who saves, and help us to rejoice and ourselves believe in the work he did to take away the sins of all who would believe in a single day on the cross. Convince us and teach us, Father, and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, we pray in the name of the one who saves. Amen.